Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation. I have Laszlo Barosh. He's a professor of pediatrics at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center, uh, part of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute at UCLA. He's also part of the Lundquist Institute of Biomedical Innovation. And we're going to talk about cancer and a metabolic approach to it. So, Laszlo, thank you for being here. Sure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, how did you get interested in cancer and how long have you been researching it? So I'm a researcher and a teacher. I'm a biochemist and uh, cancer is a continued challenge in medicine, both from the diagnostics, early diagnostics and the treatment point of views. And so I was always interested in challenging medical questions and I did research on metabolism using very specific uh, labeled glucose molecules that have kind of distributed in various forms uh, in various products of, of living cells, including cancer cells. And from there, we can kind of decode the metabolic reactions and metabolic pathways and uh, metabolic architectures that take place in normal cells versus tumor cells. And we have been trying to develop therapies that target uh, metabolic specific metabolic reactions that only cancer cells cells or specific cancer cells possess. And so <clears throat> I've been doing this research for about 20 years uh, with colleagues from UCLA and various other institutions internationally. 
And uh, my family was also affected by cancer. My twin brother died in 2006, and my mom was uh, six months later after we buried my brother. And so I devoted all my time to studying cancer metabolism with uh, specifics on stabilized pelvic accumulation and uh, heavy hydrogen due to accumulation in cancer cells. And this is the research that I'm carrying out. Well, let's start at the uh, basic. I guess a lot of people reference Otto Warburg in that I guess he said that uh, the mitochondria of cancer cells are damaged and they don't do oxidative phosphorylation as much. What, what have you found to be some of the basics of your research to start with? Yeah, so the very first paper that I published in the field is very closely related to Otto Warburg's research. What Otto Warburg was saying is that the product of glucose metabolism in cancer cells is lactic acid, even in the presence of oxygen. And uh, this requires, obviously, a mitochondrial dysfunction simply because if you have sufficient oxygen and your mitochondria are working properly, then you should receive ATP, uh, carbon dioxide, and metabolic water. And in the meantime, lactate is not produced as intensely as tumor cells would do. And this was really a significant discovery by Dr. Warburg. He later got the Nobel Prize for his discoveries, but practically, uh, as you refer to his work is, is a mitochondrial damage, yet he did not know exactly why these tumor cells produce lactate and what type of damage mitochondria suffer. But, uh, and in the meantime, we did clarify that. And this is the main focus of my research. And uh, besides of glycolysis and lactate being produced from glucose, we also started looking at the so-called pentocycle, which is the one of the metabolic pathways that glucose can participate in, and this is how tumor cells produce um, nucleic acid ribose, deoxyribose, and there are two major arms of this pentocycle, which produces a five-carbon sugar from glucose, which is a six-carbon sugar, and uh, it's one of them is a rever- irreversible pathway that tumor cells don't use as much as they use the reversible pathway, which is driven by a, an enzyme called transkinase, and we started using inhibitors of this pathway with success in cancer. And later on, we clarified how and why mitochondria are broke in tumor cells. And it seems that the heavy isotope of hydrogen, which is called deuterium, which is twice as heavy, twice as large, the nucleus of this isotope it breaks these ATP synthase nanomotors in mitochondria. And as a result of that, there's a metabolic crowding, a metabolite crowding that ends up in excessive lactate production because mitochondria are not able to take in hydrogen-carrying substrates, which come from food. Well, one second, that, one yeah. second here. One second. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that some of the micromachinery of cells that are cancerous is broken and that that disrupts the oxidative phosphorylation? That's correct. Our cells are moved and our cells are gaining energy by these, practically they call them nanomotors. They rotate about 10,000 to 20,000 rotations per minute and they transfer 
hydrogen or protons in mitochondria into the matrix, which is the most inner part of the mitochondria itself. And as a result of that, metabolic water is produced, which should be without this heavy isotope, deuterium, which deuterium, because it's being twice as heavy and twice as large as hydrogen that moves these nanomotors, deuterium breaks these nanomotors. And once they break... Does the deuterium break them? And like, how did you find out in the first place that they're these tiny... Are they revolving or spinning? Like, what do they look like? And how is this discovered that there are motors there? They look like nanomotors. The Nobel Prize for these moving proteins were the nanomotors. I think they were awarded in the mid-1980s. And uh, these are the moving parts of the mitochondria, and they practically rotate like a hairdryer or like a car engine. And in the meantime, they produce ATP, which is the general energy-carrying substrate in our cells. And uh, once these nanomotors are broke, there is no way that the protons or the hydrogens can come back into the mitochondrial matrix where they would be the presence of oxygen. This is why we breathe in oxygen, by the way, to produce water, because oxygen is waiting for hydrogen to fall into the mitochondrial matrix through these motors, and uh, just like the exhaust gas. And uh, as a result of that, oxygen would pick up these hydrogens, two of them, and form water which we call metabolic water, and this is recycled in the mitochondria through the Krebs cycle, or the Sandiordi Krebs cycle. And as a, so, as a, um, so I know we can get water by drinking it, but are you saying a major part of water in our body comes from the oxygen we breathe combining with the hydrogen stripped off from food we eat? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. That's right. You produce about 2,000 gallons of metabolic water each day that is recycled through the TCA cycle of all mitochondria so you don't see this water appearing in your system anywhere because they are immediately recycled in the mitochondria. But this water production is, is much more intense and it's a lot, whole lot more than what you can drink. And you actually eat this water because this is coming from your food. Wait, what, what, so what happens to the water? Did, you said 2,000 gallons or how much? About 2,000. It's, it's about 7,200 liters a day. That's how, that's the amount of protons that are transferred through your mitochondrial matrix or through your mitochondrial matrix membrane into the inner part, into the matrix itself, and their oxygen is forming water, and immediately as it's as fast as it's formed, it's recycled through the tri tricarboxylic acid cycle, Krebs cycle, because those are hydratase enzymes that recycle this matrix water. But it's 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 the it's in, in the amount of about two thousand gallons a day. Yes, that's correct. Wow. So this yeah, machinery gets broken, mm -hmm. you think, in cancer cells? Like, 
how does it get broken? What what breaks it? Have you been able to look at the structure of the machinery and observe them? Yes, there is this heavy hydrogen isotope, the deuterium that I mentioned, and because it's twice as heavy and twice as large, it can actually break these nanomotors. And there is a number of medical papers. There's a number of peer-reviewed papers in the medical literature that describe in this process. The first studies were carried out in the mid or late 1980s. They showed that if you treat heart muscle, uh, which uses these nanomotors very intensely with uh, deuterium containing water, then these uh, nanomotors will break down ATP synthesis is decreased in a linear manner in these uh, mitochondria or in these muscle cells. And uh, they could show the dose dependence of these nanomotor functions on deuterium, the presence of this heavy hydrogen deuterium in muscle. I know uh, Uh know that the, the deuterium breaks them, but how do you know that they're broken in cancer? Oh, because they produce lactate. They cannot take in pyruvic acid to get to get it oxidized. Oh, so and, when you uh, when so, you break them when you break them with deuterium, they have the same end products as if as in cancer cells. That's how it's the conclusion right. is drawn. Okay. How do you that's think? Right. How do you think they get broken in cancer cells? Like, um, has anyone been able to look at them under you know electron microscope at their structure, whether broken um, or working? You, you have to look at their function. So electron microscopes are not necessarily the best ways of looking at these because for that you have to stop these nanomotors so we study them while they are spinning and uh, the way of of looking at this mechanism is practically to measure oxygen consumption lactate production atp synthesis and oxygen availability and heat production in these cells and uh, because of the limited inputs of the system you can tweet out from your data if there is no oxygen consumption and there is no ATP synthesis and there is no pyruvate oxidation, but lactate is the product of glucose metabolism, then you know that uh, your mitochondria are broken. And we can also knock out certain enzymes or in tumor cells, sometimes the enzyme which recycles this metabolic water is broke. And because of the limited uh, recycling of, of this metabolic water, this Cancer cells are very aggressive. Anything that breaks these nanomotors or anything that limits the mitochondrial's, mitochondrial's ability to recycle metabolic water, they will cause cancer. It's just a matter of time when. But it's practically... Are, how do you know that these are motors? How do you know their structure and how they move and function? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Oh, these studied them uh, using various techniques and methods. They also have a oscillometric method where you can actually measure the potential electromagnetic potential change on two sides of the membrane as these nanomotors are allowing and letting these... Uh, you can actually watch them on video. If you go to YouTube and you punch in nanomotors, then you can see models and you can also see certain methods and techniques how they measure their rotations and you can see them spinning there are about 320,000 of these nanomotors in each mitochondria and we have billions of them billions and billions of them in our system as this and this is what what powers our system but you can you can watch them there's there's many 
peer-reviewed papers and also there are many PLs that show these nanomotors and these are broke with. If you watch some uh, previously that I given, I showed these nanomotors. That's very cool. What, um, why are they motors? Why do they act like, is hydrogen put into the motor and then like, what's, what's the reason that they spin and move? Why would they be shaped like this? Why would they act like Because they have to move proteins that squeeze this ATP together. To generate energy, you have to invest energy in every system. And the way ATP is generated, there are these shafts uh, that spin or push these proteins inside and out. And by the time ADP and ATP is generated, the phosphoric acid or, or inorganic phosphate is squeezed onto the, onto the ADP or adenodiphosphate molecule, and this is how it becomes ATP, adenotriphosphate. And this is actually happening in the mechanical in the mitochondria and the shaft that, that pushes these proteins that assemble ATP, these shafts are turned by nanomotors. So these are actually mechanical systems uh, that generate ATP. That's amazing. And that's spinning part. If you go to YouTube, you can actually just type in ATP synthase nanomotors and you're going to see a number of good videos that show you these uh, nanomotors and they, as they consume protons and drop them into the mitochondria. They sit in the membrane of... Oh, they sit in the membrane of the mitochondria? Of the mitochondrial matrix, yeah. I guess there's no such thing as a nanomotor mechanic you could apply for as a job. Well, if you have the tools, you can repair them, but they are very small. They are, they are only like five nanometers in, in diameter, so they are really nanomotors. That's the back. That's the flip side of it. Oh, that's amazing. I wonder, I'm sure people um, study them for other purposes and maybe try to recreate them. Do these motors appear in other parts of the cell and do they appear in all cells, do you think? Yeah, they appear in all cells, in all living creatures that use oxygen for energy production. These nanomotors are also used as ion pumps. This is how you pump uh, potassium and sodium uh, through the membranes. This is how uh, bacteria pump protons out and retain deuterium for their constant growth. And they are very common in nature. There are two types that spin in the ATP synthesis direction. Those are the ATP synthase molecules, but for that you have to build a strong proton gradient. And some other motors which actually consume energy and pump ions, they rotate the opposite, opposite direction. So the, uh, nanomotors are very common and moving proteins are very common in cells, in all human and all living cells, including prokaryotes, bacteria, and, and yeast, and so on. Uh, their direction of spinning is different because you invest energy and in pump ions, or you pump you through the ion gradient, you can actually generate energy based on the rotation of these nanomotors. And uh, I think in 2016, in combined with the nanomotors, other moving parts and other moving proteins also earned the Nobel Prize uh, for scientists. And those moving proteins are also very common that they respond to deuterium in a, in a damaging way. So deuterium damages all moving parts and all moving proteins in our cells. And this is why cancer cells are so eager to get deuterium because they can 
this heavy hydrogen isotope because they can also build it into their DNA, become, which becomes unstable. And as, as a result of that, they constantly keep dividing. Interesting. So what, um, how do these motors become broken? What part of them becomes broken? Has anyone observed that? And have they speculated how they become broken? Yeah, so it's practically a nanomotor that has a rota- rotating part. They call it the FO part. There's an F1 part and an FO part. And uh, <clears throat> the move, uh, the, all parts are moving. But the rotating part, which is moving these, which is moving the shaft, has 12 proton binding sites. And because of their high rotation, high velocity, they become disbalanced. Or it's pretty much like when you take a car, rotating your car tires just to make sure it's balanced. But the only difference is these nanomotors spin at a much higher uh, uh, velocity or much higher rotation per minute, and you know what happens when your car loses the weight, the balance. It just starts starts shaking and shattering, and your wheels may fall off. And this is what happens to the nanomotors because they have to be by weight as they turn around by two of protons. They all have to be protons, not to be kind of just shaking the mechanics. And if a deuterium, if they encounter deuterium because of its heavy weight, at that position, they're just going to break the motor simply because of the off weight or the too heavy load on one side of the, the motor. It's just like practically rotating your car tires. It has to be very precise. And that's the same in biological systems. It's because of the high rotation uh, velocity and uh, weight difference between protons and deuterons, they can break these nanomotors, the rotating parts. Yeah, that's really amazing. It it is very interesting, yeah. What is the idea on, uh, is there any way to fix them? Does the body try to fix these motors or does the mitochondria like consume them and and build new ones? Like throughout the life of a mitochondria, is there a changeover of them? Sure, You, you have to deplete, you have to, you have to get rid of deuterium from your food or you have to switch your diet, well, your cells have to switch their diet from glucose or sugars, which are very high in this deuterium. You have to switch to a ketogenic or more eating more natural fat, which is low in deuterium. So the chance of getting these isotopes, heavy deuterium isotopes into the mitochondria becomes very slim if you eat the, the right diet or you consume the right food, uh, you drink the right water, which is deuterium depleted water. You can deplete deuterium using nutritional approaches, and that will limit the amount of deuterium that can get into the mitochondria because your system, your biochemistry system, your biochemical reactions are constantly trying to get rid of deuterium as much as they can, as fast as they can. But if you exceed a certain threshold, if you overload your system with deuterium, their clearing or clearance capacity is not sufficient to do so, to get rid of deuterium before they get into pyruvic acid and get into the mitochondria, so your mitochondria may suffer. And over time, if enough mitochondria suffers, these cells start accumulating deuterium excessively and their DNA becomes unstable and uh, aneuploidy, which is a characteristic of cancer cells, uh, may develop and these cells 
divide constantly continuously and that's what cancer is. So it's mostly a diet approach, a lifestyle approach, and uh, uh, it's practically what we call deuteronomics or deuterium depletion. That's the science of how hydrogen, the light atom, and deuterium, the twice as heavy, twice as large isotope of it is separated in nature. That's the science of deuteronomics. This this is what we established. And uh, uh, official... So, um, so has anyone created a low deuterium diet? Is anyone like try to classify That's a whole right. bunch of foods and see that? And if so, what's on it? Yeah, you can go and just type in deuterium depleted water and deuteronomics, and then you can see a bunch of companies that are preparing or actually measuring deuterium level in saliva and some body fluids, and also they prepare and they can provide food and drinks that are low in deuterium. We also do these measurements of food-wise, and uh, we recommend patients uh, and doctors to incorporate deuterium depletion in the cancer treatment protocols, surgeries or radiation, whatever therapies they plan, deuterium depletion should be part of it. Yeah, are there any foods that are particularly high in deuterium that people should avoid? Those are glucose carbohydrates, processed carbohydrates. Oh, so not only do they have a lot of glucose, but they also have deuterium in them? They they have high deuterium, yes. Deuterium is not not a very common isotope. It's about 1 million hydrogen, 155 deuterium. We call it 155 ppm. Glucose is about 150, 152 ppm. That's how much deuterium it contains. And uh, as you go from sugar, flour processed food, GMO food, which are very high in deuterium, you can go down to 120, below 120 if you eat saturated animal fat, which is which are grass-fed animals. It's called the ketogenic diet, and uh, those efficiently deplete deuterium for mitochondria, and this is part of nutrition of cancer patients, but also they use it in in treating uh, epilepsy or, or epileptic seizures in, in children. Uh, since the 20s, they use these ketogenic diets that are low in the tumor, and this is how they control seizures in kids, but it, it also helps cancer. So in the mitochondria, are these motors constantly being made, and then the, the ones that are broken, are they being disassembled and reused? Yeah, once uh, they are well, they don't. They are not constantly made. If you don't have much overload in your system, these motors, these motors can spin for a long time. If you have high deuterium, then you're right. They need to be repaired and they need to be replaced. And uh, usually, those proteins are ubiquinated, so the cells would tag them with a certain amino acid sequence and they are disassembled, broken, hydrolyzed or broken down by repair enzymes and then these, they are assembled from various proteins that are synthesizing the cells in mitochondria, but practically, yes, that's how you do it. You disassemble them and you build new ones. Yeah, this is crazy. That's amazing. It's, it's interesting, yeah. So what, what kind of therapies... Are you investigating or looking at, or what's the focus of your research in re- surrounding these motors? It's deuterium depletion or deuteronomics or depletion. Now we have even a word for it. That's what we use. We deplete deuterium and we strategically 
measure and plan uh, but how those deuterium levels or deuterium amounts should be regulated or prevented to get into the system. And uh, that's practically what is the besides the standard care. This is the nutritional, the integrated part of our research just to give them advice how to deplete deuterium efficiently through food and drinks. And um, again, there are, I don't want to advertise here anybody, but there are many companies that now sell deuterium depleted water for therapeutic purposes for cancer patients. Oh, really? What happens if you have deuterium depleted water? I mean, the damage won't increase, or it'll, it'll increase very little, and then what, the mitochondria slowly repair themselves? Do they, do they come yeah, back the to mi- functioning properly? Yeah, yeah, the mitochondria can function, produce heat and carbon dioxide. They can completely oxidize pyrogas, so lactate is not used which Otto Warburg was uh, suggesting, or he measured this process. Um, lactate production is decreasing. Oxidative phosphorylation is increasing. The cells are happier. They may revert back to their original normal biotype phenotype, and they lose their cancerous phenotype. We did one of those studies at the Institute. We published also this in the medical literature. But... Um, Indeed, these cells become more of a normal cell as far as their metabolism is concerned. Uh, Their oxidative phosphorylation in the presence of oxygen is sufficient to maintain a normal And their survival increases. uh, Several just published a paper in cancer control showing that inoperable pancreatic cancer patients at least tripled their survival time. By the by the time we completed the study, what, and by, um, by just having this water, or? drinking this water of uh, sixty days or less bef- after diagnosis, these were unoperable, operable, inoperable patients, and uh, they their survival. We have fairly good data with prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, and metastases in the medical literature, and. Also, as far as mechanisms go with kidney cancer, now there's several papers in the medical literature, at least 10, 15 papers showing the beneficial effect of deuterium depletion and also characterize the aggressiveness of the disease based on deuterium load. So you can, you can find uh, various supporting data for, for this argument. So um, the survival is longer, but, you know, are you looking at the mitochondria, let's say, under a microscope, or, you know, how do you look at the metabolomics of a mitochondria or of a single cell? How do you know that it's returning back to health, that it's working oh, you just mitochondria healing? You measure lactate, and you measure CO2, you measure ATP, and you measure oxygen consumption. And once lactate production is ceasing, means that once lactate is not getting secreted, not getting expelled by these cells, those mean that these cells are now producing carbon dioxide from glucose, not lactic acid, and that can only happen in the mitochondria. And we can measure the CO2 release, and we can tell if the cells are more normal. And uh, we can also measure the tomb content of various body fluids, and we can also follow these uh, changes in diagnostic or using diagnostic procedures 
And the Yale University now started a process for MRI diagnostics of cancer using deuterium metabolic imaging. So they label glucose with deuterium and they look at the products of glycolysis and they measure deuterium accumulation, lactic acid, and glutamine, which comes from the mitochondria, and also in water, so you can see where the deuterium ends up. But uh, yes, now now there are many ways of looking at mitochondrial functions, just following the fate of these substrates. Yeah, no, that's that's really amazing. What what are you hoping to figure out and solve in, over the next few years in regards to these uh, mitochondrial motors? We think, or it's just not just us, but many investigators and many integrative doctors now think that this decade is going to be the decade of deuterium and mitochondrial nanomotor damage in various disease processes because this mechanism can also cause tissue-specific damage. And uh, we are hoping that deuterium depletion becomes a general, well-understood, well-sized and practiced part of medicine and people will learn for their lifestyles and for their approach to take care of their, better, their health better by depleting deuterium, by consuming diet that is low in deuterium and consuming less water, and that water that they consume is deuterium depleted, and those are preventive measures. But these, these are the main goals that we would like to achieve. When these motors are broken, are they just useless? Are they quickly recycled, or do you know if they just stay in the cell and sit there? No, they very quickly. They are very quickly recycled and repaired. Well, new new nanomotors are built, uh, but depending on your deuterium load, you can also break a lot of them. So eventually, it's the repair and the restoration type of effort compared to how many of them are broken down. But if you start depleting deuterium, then you may just overcome the repairs. There are not that many nanomotors that need uh, replacement. And, but, but the first phase, the first step in the process is, is to start depleting deuterium through food and drinks. Well, what happens to the, uh, the deuterated hydrogen in your body or the deuterium in your body when it uh, breaks these motors? Is it recycled or is it excreted? Uh, those are excreted through the urine. The urea cycle in your mitochondria is one of those mechanisms that try to clear mitochondria, mitochondrial matrix of deuterium. There's also glycolysis uh, also clears deuterium from glucose using various reactions that are reversible isomerase type of enzyme reactions and so on then your body gets rid of deuterium through secretion and saliva and so on. And uh, for that matter, you can regulate your deuterium level based on how much deuterium you take in. Deuterium cleaning process, this deuterium clearance is a constant biochemical task that most of Mm -hmm. your biochemical just perform. Interesting. Do you know if there's any other biological processes that deuterium has a heavy hand in? Yeah, the DNA stability, because uh, DNA has hydrogen bonds, and once you place a hydrogen with deuterium, that bond is harder to break. It takes about eight times more energy to break the oxygen or nitrogen deuterium bonds. 
DNA is very sensitive. All proteins are very sensitive. And metabolic water, the weight of water is also sensitive due to, due to, 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 due to load. So practically every part, moving parts, uh, structure parts, they are all sensitive to deuterium. We need a very little, small amount of deuterium for for a few for bacterial growth in our gut. For example, that's how we maintain our bacterial gut flora or microbiome. We have to give them food with deuterium so they can constantly grow and clear that for our body and return some deuterium-depleted uh, ketone bodies like propionic acid and, and uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate. But practically, it's a kind of a collaboration, cooperation with these organisms to keep our body healthy um, and our absorption uh, well-maintained. But practically, it is, yes, it's a, it's a very important part of life to share deuterium then to clear deuterium from moving cellular parts. Yeah, amazing. Very cool. Leslie, what, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? And then, um, you know, we'll encourage them to obviously to look on YouTube to see these motors. And maybe you could provide a link or two to uh, a paper or so that shows them, you know, maybe electron micrographs of them. Sure. Should I send those through email or? Yeah, email. You can also. And we'll mm-hmm. put them in the show notes. And then, um, okay. uh, what, you know, just speaking on here for people that are interested in this conversation. Oh. Where yeah. can they go to see more of your work? Where should they go? So if you go to LazloGboros.com, which is my first name, my middle initial, and my last name without that, LazloGboros.com, as I said, this is my, that's my website. It has a lot of information about Nutium, my talks, my papers, my the talks, my podcasts, some of them, and some bigger talks that I gave to larger audiences. That is the best way of learning about the tomb. They're both easy to understand. There's also a course they can take, a deuteronomics course, and get their certifications. There's a basic physics, there's a translational medicine, and there's a clinical set of courses that uh, are practically laszlogboros.com. Okay. Laszlo, it's been a really interesting conversation. This is like very new stuff, at least for me, I think for listeners, and I appreciate your work. Thank you for being here. Sure. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.